1: Hello and welcome. You're listening to For the State, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from Tourist in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Euro Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Anthony Dockwell. Tonight's show was recorded recently at the University of Technology as part of a series called Meet the Journalist, and it features the Monthly's contributing editor, Richard Cook. The interview was conducted by UTS student John Ferguson. Over the next 30 minutes, you'll hear Richard talk about his career and his strange and dark journey through America in 2016. Let's give a round of applause to Richard.
0: Thank you very much. Thanks for coming.
1: His
2: wife dressed him today, so we thank her for that. I
0: told you not to say that. (laughs) Oh, sorry. It's okay. It's it's too late now. (laughs)
2: Um, So, welcome to UTS. Um, Thank you. I'd like to start with a really basic question of journalism. Um, Why did you want to be a journalist?
0: Um, I never really thought about being anything else. Um, I'd always wanted to be a writer ever since I was a child, like a five-year-old child. And like many people who confused writing and journalism, um, I was able to sort of trick myself into journalism by that route. It's not the only kind of writing that I do, but it is the main kind. So I sort of went through student publications, went uh, and worked in in magazines for a while, then went and worked in TV and um, sort of did satirical comedy through The Chaser. And then I guess seven years ago, started getting more seriously into long form journalism, comment pieces, and that's where I am now.
2: Yeah, so your first, very
0: first gig was? first gig ever in journalism, in paid journalism? Um, that's a good question. I think my first full-time job in journalism was as, at an, as an editorial assistant on Ansett's Flight magazine, um, which was a bit of a baptism of fire. I actually stopped my degree partway through to do it, and it was... It was a mistake. I mean, I I learned a lot from it, but they were foolish to hire me and I was foolish to take the job, Um, so it didn't last too long. (laughs) Do you like flying? I do, yeah, um, but in a non-professional context, more often. (laughs) Yeah, all
2: right, Mm. okay. So... Actually, today we had a meeting with some of the, some of the students had a meeting with the heads of journalism and kind of just discussing what works in a course and whatnot, we're talking about graduating. So we do realize that it's a lot harder for student graduates like us to like, get into the industry um, because it's such a uh, ambiguous kind of situation. You've yes. got, you know, multi-platform, you've got digital media, your social media.
0: By ambiguous, I think you mean carnage, but... Um... <laughs>
2: You are very dramatic in your writing, so I take that I take that uh, so do you think that the like industry like as a result of the digital convergence is like a is that the biggest problem for journalism this kind of multi platform you're
0: a writer so um, I don't think that you can sort of sum up the changing nature of journalism just to say that it went digital and all of our problems started from there um, we're told we're talking about journalism being one institution at the juncture of a whole lot of others, a lot of those are in crisis as well, or in flux certainly as well. Um, It's certainly caused problems for journalism's business model um, and uh, what used to be a bit more of a set career path. Um, It's certainly made freelancing in particular exceptionally difficult, Um, but it's just part of a bigger picture of change So now we'll
2: move on to you personally. That's journalism covered. Mm. Um, (laughs) Can I go? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You have reported on such a broad spectrum of topics within America, especially Uh, recently. It ranges from mass shootings to the Me Too campaign or the Me Too movement and the election of Trump. And Mm -hmm. I really want to get into all of them at once and I will grill you about them. But uh, first of all, what is your process of finding a story or even like a fresh angle to a story?
0: Uh, There are so many varieties of of ways that stories kind of come to me and that um, some of it's just proximity. So I was in Washington. I was actually in Silver Spring, Maryland, when there was a mass shooting in Annapolis, Maryland, um, which is, you know, only sort of 90 minutes away. So I felt I should just go there. You know, that was just an on-the-ground piece of reporting. Um, Sometimes, I mean, I read a huge amount of news material... There there are a lot of writers, you know, Truman Capote is an example, who would start the day by reading every newspaper. I don't read every newspaper, but I read a lot. Um, I eavesdrop. I get stories through that sometimes. Meeting people, although that's probably less common than it used to be. Um, And also sort of ideas that, that come to me sometimes about old stories and just thinking, okay, well, what would, you know, how did this happen? I'll observe something and think, okay, what's the origin point of this observation? So it's a, it's a very wide variety, yeah.
2: So this kind of feeds into the long-form journalism, which you write for the monthly yeah. and those kind of things. Um, these articles can be almost 4,000 words long. Uh-huh. It's a really long piece. Um,
0: well, they can be 10,000 words long, but... Um, extremely long. Yeah.
2: Long. Sometimes uh-huh. longer. Uh, why is this form form of journalism important, or maybe needed? And why are you writing these articles? And when you write them, who's the audience that you imagine reading these pieces?
0: I think it's uh, I I sort of hesitate to say it's important with a capital I, uh, as in more important than another form of journalism. I think the strengths of long of long form. Uh, first of all, you can fit a lot of information into the story, right? You know, just by the number of words you can, you can fit a lot more data in. Um, you can also can put the data together in a way where someone who doesn't know anything about it um, can come away with, with a fair bit of knowledge about it. Um, and you get paid more as a freelancer. Like that's, that's seriously very important. You know, If you're gonna spend weeks or potentially months researching a piece, you can't be paid $600 at the end.
2: Um, I guess that kind of leads us to obstacles of Mm. having to write these long-form pieces. So, what is the biggest obstacle for you to write a long-form investigative journalist piece? Is it that the paycheck? Where
0: do you start? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Time uh, is very important. So, you know, in Australia in particular, in the US, people are often commissioning, you know, six months, even more in advance, they'll have a very clear idea and they'll have a process set up where you'll be able to work on a story um, throughout that six months. That's less common here. It's not, it's not impossible, but it's harder. Um, it is very hard to invest a significant amount of time and, and money. You know, I think a, a very significant difference that people have kind of underestimated is how much more expensive it is to research a story now than it used to be. I mean, if you go back, say, 30 years ago, people were living in hotels because it was cheap. Um, now, an absolute minimum cost uh, in the United States, if you're on the road doing a story, would be something like 100 uh, hundred Australian dollars per day in accommodation. That's a shared B&B. That's a, a motel that you won't get shot at, you know. And, and a motel where you might get shot is a 20% discount on that. So... Um, another, another impediment is just, uh, access and, you know, the, the number of layers that you have to go through to speak to the people, even sometimes to do quite basic things. Um, so when I was in Florida, I was looking at a couple of important congressional districts, right? Um, and I wanted to find out something very, very basic. Where could I see a candidate speak? When were they, when were they, giving a, a policy stump speech, right? Um, answering that question took me six days. Um, I spoke to more than 30 different people working on the Democratic camp. It actually became a story about how disorganised the Democratic campaign was. I drove all over Miami, going to um, field offices to try and meet the right person. To, this is, you know, very, very fundamental. What is really supposed to be journalism 101? What does a politician believe? What are you voting for? And what was striking to me was that there were almost no other journalists there at all. There's a, you know, incredibly important swing districts for the midterm elections, really the sort of places that decide you know, the future of politics in America and the world. And there weren't even local Florida journalists there doing this kind of work anymore. Um, they, they honestly seemed really surprised to see me and didn't know quite what to do with me. And this is a form of journalism which was common not that long ago. Um, so when, when people talk about access, like another example I think of is, you know, some people might be familiar with the famous long form story, Frank Sinatra has a cold, right? This is all about Gay Talese not having access to Frank Sinatra, The 1960s version of not having access is sitting in a room with Frank Sinatra and no minder for three days as long as you don't talk to him in person. You would never get that anymore. It's impossible. You you might get it under very, very strict circumstances. You know, we're talking about a time not like long ago in journalism where people like Hunter S. Thompson were just having conversations with President Nixon. All that is gone. And the reality is that many, many graduates of communication courses are standing in between journalists and those people.
2: I'm just gonna jump a little bit, but I won't. Um, so I guess, I mean, I've read your pieces on the midterm election, uh, this, these midterm elections, and then as well as your piece on nootropics, um, which is really quite interesting. Uh, weird, kind of a bit sci-fi esque. Yes. Yeah. Um, but you're touching on that, that America is just not what it used to be, and but also that it's a it's a completely different landscape from what I'm hearing to what we experience here in Australia. Maybe. Um, can you just talk to me about what it was actually a, what it was actually like being in America during the time when, you know, this little Trump saga, election, being elected.
0: Um, well, it's it's hard to generalise about. Um, because America is so big and so varied. I mean, that's why I I sort of wrote my book in such an episodic way, because you can't come away just having a capital A story about America that you can summarise in a couple of lines, you know. Um, the, The times where I was on the border at Laredo, Texas versus the times I was in somewhere like Flint, Michigan, every single thing about these places is different apart from some of the, you know, the legal and cultural and social framework. They could be in different countries very easily. Um, So I guess um, if you had to summarize it from a journalistic point of view, um, we're we're coming into a world where I think there's more general hostility towards journalists I didn't experience too much of that in a sort of in-your-face version. Um, that was partly because I was Australian, um, that Americans sort of copped it worse. But it's also a, a disinformation environment. Um, you know, especially when I was speaking to people in rural and regional areas, their local newspapers have often keeled over. And one of the kind of minor tragedies of going to America is. <laughs> Very frequently, when you visit even a small city, the best building in the city is the old newspaper offices. You know, it's right in the middle of town, often has beautiful architecture. This is not just a symbol, but it's a kind of a situation of of its importance. And now, what those people read instead is often stuff on Facebook, which is misinformation. And they believe the misinformation and they um, want you to believe the misinformation too.
2: So you spoke that you, you, that you actually copped it not as badly as some of the American journalists. Mm. What are some of the things that they would tell you that they wouldn't tell an American journalist or if people came up to you? Or...
0: Um, I think it's more just reluctance to talk generally. And, I mean, that doesn't mean that it's a non-risk environment. Like, I was advised to buy body armour um, for some of the reporting that I did and did, um, I wouldn't recommend doing DIY body armour, What buying off the internet and working out what calibre of gun you're going to be shot by <laughs> and how much that is worth to you because, you know, no one else is paying for it. Um, and look, I didn't end up wearing it in a hostile environment, but well, there were places where I was certainly aware of the fact that people didn't want me there. It's just a matter of kind of triaging that about when you leave, really.
2: So... I know that you couldn't like, s- like summarise how it was under the Trump mm. kind of election period and after, but could you give us an insight what it was like being on the ground with everyday Americans during this
0: um, process? Well, again, it's, it you know, varies very, very widely. Sometimes people would really take you by surprise. Um, you know, I, there's a part in that story where I describe being in Pahrump, Nevada, and going into a... Small casino in the middle of the day um, where it 's all dark, and there was a woman wearing a kind of Notre Dame like college football shirt and getting hammered at the bar and playing video poker and It turned out that she read the science journal Nature every night to go to sleep and knew all of this stuff about you know um, endocrinology and and you know was very very opinionated about Trump uh, in all kinds of unexpected ways so it is easy to kind of go through and and find yourself playing stereotypes and you have to be careful not to do that but other times it was just you know dealing with people who are very obnoxious um you know dealing with people who have an extreme antipathy towards illegal migrants and want to tell you about it all the time sometimes past the point where you've stopped listening so um it's it's very varied you know it's The emotional experience of it is very, very varied. And it's really reliant on who you're talking to and and why, I think. yeah.
2: Would you say the spectrum's broader than here in Australia?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's hundreds of millions of people. There are more Texans than Australians. Uh, So that gives you some idea of of the variety. Um, I think that probably Americans are a bit more passionate and engaged than than Australians are. Patriotic. yeah, not just that, but I think that Australians can be quite apathetic um, and very few Americans are apathetic. Um, so you'll you'll sometimes get more expressed variety, I guess would be one way to think about it. Australians might have to work a bit harder.
2: So moving on to the man himself, Trump, um, mm. you can't really discuss him without discussing the phenomenon of fake news.
0: Yeah, um, it's interesting... The way that I said, I mean, the reason that I wanted to go to America and report was because I felt there was far too much reporting about Trump and that there was this whole huge country that had led to him being in power and was still putting him in power and I was hearing almost nothing about it, especially from Australian correspondents who are over there. Um, So I decided to go and try and see as much of that as I could. And then, since I've got back, all people want to ask me about is Trump, um, which is fine. I mean, he's, he's interesting. I just don't think he's, he's that interesting or sort of the end of the, the story. Um, Trump is both a product of the media um, and someone who has gamed it very successfully. So an important thing, I think, to understand about him is he's very market-researched, if you know what I mean. Like, if you look at Trump's positions on all kinds of different policy issues. They have been all over the place. Someone pointed out Trump in the 1980s was most of the time just echoing what he read in the New York Times. And now he's echoing what he's watching on Fox and he has this very unhealthy symbiotic relationship with Fox. Um, But to give you an example, the phrase build the wall was something that Trump's aides came up with so that he remembered to talk about immigration at his rallies and the response to it was so extreme that it became his kind of signature and that's not something that trump just it's not just a rabbit that he pulled out of a hat you know it was there waiting to happen
2: i think what you touched on at the very beginning of that was that you said that you don't think trump himself is that interesting like and you went over there to kind of go a little bit deeper and maybe kind of just find out what you were doing.
0: Look, I, I do think he's interesting, but I think that there's this real tendency, especially um, American liberals put a lot of emphasis on decorum. Um, they put a lot of emphasis on manners and, and kind of being well-mannered and being presidential. And there's almost this idea that Trump can't be president because he's unpresidential. You know what I mean? That, that if, if people only realised what he was really like and how vulgar he would be, that would be the end of his presidency. And they've been trying to end it by that means for the entirety of it, you know, really before it even started. And I just wasn't very interested in that process. Um, It clearly wasn't working very well. Um, And there were all these other reasons why people wanted Trump to be vulgar on their behalf. It's also just not like being in America in the 2016 election campaign and, and just not understanding what I'd seen. You know, just going and going to a Trump rally and coming out and going, what the fuck was that? And, and wanting to go back and try and answer that question.
2: But so then would you say that a way to handle this is not cover Trump or, I mean, not give him the spotlight that he apparently
0: Look, is- I, I think you, you, can't, you can't not... You can't not... Cover Trump, what you can not do is obsess over his Twitter feed. Um, You know, you cannot devote the top story of the Washington Post and the New York Times every single day to, you know, I don't know if you guys get the New York Times and the Washington Post digest, but if you open up the email, you know, I'm often like, first thing I look at in the morning, kind of look at it, one eye, and the first word every single time is Trump, every single time. He's not the only story in America. And certainly what he says on Twitter is not the only story in America. They're, they're reorientating to that now, but it's very, very difficult to create accountability for him, especially when what is attractive to Trump for many people is that he has successfully resisted media accountability. That, that is a very attractive aspect of him for many Trump supporters.
2: So, this kind of brings me to your book, Tired of Winning a Chronicle of American Decline. Mm. Um, Like leading, like you said that, you know, you didn't, you walked out of rallies and you didn't really know, like, what was that? Like, I don't get that, like, I'm trying to unpack it. I guess this book, was that an effort to try to unpack?
0: Yeah, very much so. Um, And I wanted to try and approach it with a sense of humility and also geographical and thematic variety. Not just foreign correspondence, but even the, the U.S. media itself is very lopsided to the East Coast, and particularly, you know, the corridor between New York and Washington. It's really—it it sounds crazy when you say California is underreported on in the United States, but I promise you, it is true. That the number of stories, especially from places like the Southwest, that really enter the national consciousness of the the big media in America is, is pretty limited and I just wasn't hearing about, about places like that really ever and so I wanted to go and have a look at them.
2: So writing this book, maybe deconstructing some elements of, of, of the Trump situation in your own eyes, leading into this like November 2020 America's election, what's your gut telling you about which way America will swing?
0: Well, my gut's telling me not to make predictions anymore. <laughs> um, it's There are really profound structural elements to the American electoral system which mean that you can't just stick your finger in the wind and work out which way it's blowing because it's about where the votes fall and why rather than, you know, some grand sense. When, I mean... I'll just give you an example of of how hard it is to predict things. When I went to those two Florida congressional districts, I I probably knew as much about them as the operatives who were working in them for either side, uh, the Democrats and the Republicans, by the end of it. I was speaking to all of them. I was looking at things like individual booth breakdowns by voter registration. You know, I had interviewed dozens of people... um, I had driven between them many times at different times of day. I'd done everything that I possibly could um, to try and understand what was going to happen. And I was wrong. You know, my, it, it is just so hard. Elections are very, very complex systems. You know, they have multiple variables. And anytime time you, you meet someone who says they're a kind of poll whisperer and they can always pick it, they never do it very many times. You know, they might do it once. Usually what's happened is that that's a person who has picked an unlikely result once. And then they come up with all these other pieces of prognostication. They all turn out to be wrong. You know, journalists and other people generally are not very good at predicting things.
2: But surely you can't disagree that his kind of freewheeling on the economy is like starting to affect ordinary Americans to the extent where they will, you know, where the ordinary Americans will become like those who determine the outcome is Mm. it is not is he not done kind of enough to kind of have a feeling
0: no i mean i'll give you um at the moment trump's tariffs are really harming soybean farmers in particular and they're harming soybean farmers in key states most of those soybean farmers have started to blame the u.s department of agriculture for implementing a conspiracy theory uh uh, uh, what they think of as a conspiracy possibly orchestrated by the deep state to fabricate um, corn-yield futures to harm Trump's re-election chances. So one one of the things that you have to think about... Sorry? No hope. Well, I wouldn't say there's no hope because it's, it's just going to come down to... Things like voter turnout in Pennsylvania suburbs, you know what I mean? But are there? Is there a lot of buyer's remorse for Trump among his hardcore supporters? Absolutely not. And one of the reasons why is that these people already believed that they were suffering and Trump gave them gave their suffering meaning, so it has gone from meaning to sacrifice. And that's not an easy thing to get rid of.
2: But do you think that, you know, despite his economic kind of habit, <laughs> that they had kind of trained that in for the un- unorthodoxy of Trump, this politician that's <clears throat> polarising character?
0: <clears throat> when I was in Pahrump, I'm not sure if I have to give a content warning for this example. Whip it up, then. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so this is a local election. This is sort of district level. Um, there is a candidate in Pahrump called Dennis Hoff. Has anyone heard of him before? Dennis Hoff was a pimp in Nevada. Um, He ran an infamous brothel called the Bunny Ranch. And that was the subject of a um, reality TV show. So he became a kind of self-styled Trump. Um, You know, he called himself the Trump from Pahrump and (laughs) rode his coattails to win a Republican primary for office, right? During the election, he died, and he died in such a way that his name couldn't be removed from the ballot. And so what happens then is that that person can be voted for or voted against, and a committee will decide his replacement. Denisov won that seat, so many people, a majority of people in Pahrump were more willing to vote for a dead pimp than to vote for a Democrat. And there's a New Yorker story about how one of the people who voted for Dennis Hoff in those circumstances was a former employee of his at the Bunny Ranch that Dennis Hoff had raped. That gives you some idea of the level of antipathy towards Democratic candidates in the regional United States. To call them unelectable would be doing them a favour.
1: That's where we have to leave the discussion. You've been listening to Richard Cook talking about his career. He was talking with John Ferguson as part of the UTS Meet the Journalist series. You can find the full talk at the UTS website. And thank you for listening to The 4th Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of Tourist Yar and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Make sure you subscribe to 4th Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and a few things in between. We'll be back with more next week but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is 4 au. I'm Anthony Dockwell. Thanks for listening.